Welcome to the Standard of Truth podcast, hosted by historian Dr. Garrett Dirkmott, where we explore the early days of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and gain rare historical insights into how a young farm boy was able to establish a new church and grow it by way of visions, manifestations, and miracles. Hi, welcome to another episode of the Standard of Truth podcast. I'm your host, Garrett Dirkmont, and I'm joined by my co-host, Richard Leduc. In today's podcast, we want to talk about the translation of the Book of Mormon. And Garrett is a scholar that has spent most of his academic career studying the translation of the Book of Mormon. He published with his co-author, Michael McKay, from Darkness Unto Light, Joseph Smith's translation and publication of the Book of Mormon. And so, Garrett, as it relates to you describing the translation of the gold plates, how do you go about that? That's, that's, quite, that's quite the story, quite the telling. Yeah, and it's, a, it's, a, it's obviously a pretty big uh, undertaking to try to explain this process because there's so many, there's, there's a lot of different moving parts here. I mean, whenever someone wants a really simple explanation for something, you know, you know, I feel like that's me, you know, if I were to ask Stephen Hawking to, you know, tell me the, the, the tell me exactly how string theory works, but I've only got 30 seconds. <laughs> I mean, the, the reality is that there, there's a lot of sources involved in the translation and there's a lot of different theories that people have about the way things actually happen. And so, you know, there, there's a lot of, there's a lot of things that circulate that, you know, members of the church will hear at times bits and pieces of someone will say, oh yes, this is how it was done. Oh no, actually this is how it was done. And all of that is also wrapped up in our visual representations that we've had access to. The reality is I would guess that most of us never really had a Sunday school lesson that was on the mechanics of the translation of the Book of Mormon, right? Did you ever have one? I did not. Yeah. Well, um, that's because we focus on the Book of Mormon itself, right? The Book of Mormon and and this testament of Jesus, this this amazing book of scripture that's the it's the bedrock of faith for for most members of the church. This is why they believe. Well, because it is so it's so central to us, that's usually what we focus on. At the same time, the miraculous nature of the translation has in some ways, kind of fallen by the wayside because we haven't really talked about it. And, you know, Aristotle taught that, I mean, at least it's reported that he taught. I don't actually know what Aristotle actually said, but this is what people said that he said, so I'm going to go ahead and quote him. Fake Aristotle coming at you here is that, you know, nature abhors a vacuum. And the the meaning of that is that into an empty space, something's going to fill it. And so what happens when we don't actually know what the witnesses of the translation of the Book of Mormon said about the translation, and we have uh, you know, an image in our mind that might be uh, conjured up by you know, paintings that we've seen or just the way that we've assumed it. I mean, I can think of myself for one instance. When I was a teenager and I thought of Joseph Smith translating the gold plates, the way I thought about it was... Joseph Smith had gold plates open in front of him and he was like running his finger over the top of them. And, and that, that was basically the extent of what I thought. Um, and, and I think that's how it is for most people. Cause again, like I said, in most cases, most members of the church have not ever been in a Sunday school lesson or a seminary class where someone said, okay, let's talk about what Martin Harris said the seer stones look like. I mean, I'm guessing that's not, top of mind of, of most lessons. And so I think that one of the places we want to start is, is the fact that if you don't know exactly how the book of Mormon was translated, welcome to literally everyone else. I mean, that's normal. I, I never had a single lesson my entire time growing up on this. It wasn't something that was focused on by the church. Now, it started to get focused on by uh, antagonists of the church, and really in the same way that it always was. It was people started to focus on the way Joseph said he translated the Book of Mormon as a means of attacking the process and attacking uh, faith. 
Uh, there's a, a quite body uh, animated series that, uh, you know, a decade and a half ago or so made fun of Mormons and Mormonism, and in particular, the Joseph Smith story. Um, they made fun of Joseph Smith using a seer stone and um, and using a hat as part of the translation in a way that was very mocking, in a way that was, you know, uh, completely dismissive of the faith, and at the same time, in a way that most members hadn't ever heard of before. And so you can see how when your initial exposure to the translation is a bunch of non-believers making fun of what it is you believe, and your response is, wait, I don't even believe that. And then someone shows you, you know, Emma Smith explaining Joseph Smith translating by placing a seer stone into a hat. That can actually cause a lot of problems for our faith, I think, because we're surprised by it. And, and, and depending on the source that's providing us those things, it might be a relatively nefarious one. It might not just be trying to get laughs with a, an adult-style humor animated show. It might be someone who's deliberately trying to hurt our faith. And they use the fact that we don't know about the translation as a way of undermining what it is we do believe. I think I've said this before. The reality is nobody knows everything about everything. If the standard has to be, if there's anything about church history that I have not heard about, then the church must be lying. Well, that's that's an impossible standard. Like it's it's literally my job to study church history, and there are tons of things that I don't know. I find things all the time when I'm researching. So, not knowing. You know, we, we need to we need to be a little bit more okay with not knowing. We need to be a little bit more okay, especially when it's a topic that we haven't undertaken ourselves to to try to find out. Yeah, I mean, I don't know exactly, you know, how you're going to have something like, you know, at what point are you working seer stones into a, you know, a sunbeam lesson? I mean, I in, in any way that's meaningful. The reality is for many of these topics. These, these kind of deeper topics, the only way for us to know is if we have invested some time ourselves and, and, you know, hopefully we've had a great, you know, seminary or institute teacher, or, uh, maybe we've, uh, we've taken some other religious classes, or maybe we've had a great Sunday school teacher that's talked about it, but I would guess that for many people listening, they haven't. So that was probably a way too long introduction to explain what's a good way of approaching this. Well, first of all, Let's just start with what we could know if all we had in front of us was uh, the, the scriptures themselves. So I don't have any other sources. I've just got the scriptures. I'm, you know, I'm okay. I'm like the saints in 1881, right? Because after the Pearl of Great Price is canonized, you got those scriptures in front of you. So you have Joseph Smith history. What can I know about the translation if that's all that I have? I mean, really, one of the problems of antagonists of the church is the simple way of dismissing Joseph Smith's uh, translation of the Book of Mormon is to simply say, oh, yeah, Joseph Smith like totally wrote it. Right? That's the easy way. But then when we look at, you know, I wish I could you know, have a visual for you here, uh, some of Joseph Smith's writing that he wrote three years after the fact, talking about himself in his 1832 history, um, he says, we were deprived, spelled wrong, of the benefit, spelled wrong, of an education. Suffice it to say that I was merely, spelled wrong, instructed, spelled wrong, in reading, not probably that well, and writing, and the ground rules of arithmetic also spelled wrong, which constituted my whole literary acquirement spelled wrong. At about the age of 12 years, my mind became seriously impressed, spelled wrong, with regard to the all-important concerns important spelled wrong for the welfare spelled wrong of my immortal soul, which led me to searching the scriptures. Now that's Joseph Smith writing on his own. Um, again, I, you know, if you had a visual of it, you could see it a lot better. And that's three years after he supposedly wrote the entirety of, of the book of Mormon. So you can see where the reality is this book is, seems to be totally outside of Joseph's abilities which will lead to people trying to explain other ways that it come from. Now, what do historians say about the Book of Mormon? You can take Daniel Walker Howe, uh, uh, eminent historian who says that it should rank among the greatest achievements of American literature. 
it, it is a, a an impressive book. Yeah, if you don't believe in the Book of Mormon, it's still an impressive book. I mean, frankly, that's the way that people should look at some of these other aspects. I mean, you may not believe in the Quran, but it's impressive. It's impressive that it exists, and and to claim that it's just uh, you know meaningless it, or manufactured is it, it's a pretty weak claim. Obviously, there, there's there's some there's power behind it. At any rate. Uh, let's talk about what could you know about the Book of Mormon translation if all you had was was the Book of Mormon. Let's start with probably, I mean, it's some people's most favorite story in the Book of Mormon, and that is the brother of Jared having his powerful experience with God. Right? The brother of Jared, he's got two problems with his boats, right? The ones that are tight like unto a dish. First, we can't breathe, which is, you would, it, I'm glad that that's the one that they deal with first, Right? If we if we make these things airtight, then we're going to die. So that, you know, Mahanrai Moriankarma was all over that. We're going to need an air hole. It's the first conversation. And, you know, they fix that. But secondly, the problem that they have is that it's going to be dark on these boats. How are they going to have light? And the way that they, the way that he, he, he remedies this is he moldens these rocks uh, these stones out of other rock. Um, and he, and he asked the Lord, uh, you know, to touch them and he's able to see the finger and it's a miraculous experience. One of the great miracles in, uh, the, one of the great miracles in the book of Mormon is this brother of Jared, uh, experience. And he, after that, after he's told to take these stones and, and place them in the barges so that they can, uh, you know, these 16 stones I will give thee, right? He's then given, at the same time, two other stones. Now, I don't know whether it's among the 16 of the stones or whether these are different stones, but if you go to Ether, all right, he, he's, he's going to explain that, this is Ether chapter 3, that this is verse 22 and 23. And behold, when you shall uh, when you shall come unto me, you shall write them and shall seal them up that no one can interpret them, for you shall write them in a language that they cannot be read. And behold, these two stones will I give unto thee, and ye shall seal them up with the things that ye shall write. He goes on to say, I will cause my own due time that these stones shall magnify to the eyes of men these things which ye shall write. And uh, Moroni, who is the one who abridges the book of Ether, he's the one who gives it to us there. Um, he says that he sealed up the, the interpreters according to the commandment of the Lord, that this commandment that was given by God. So we have these stones that are given specifically for translation to the brother of Jared. That's, that's where we start off. But that's not the only place that the Book of Mormon talks about translation. If you now go to the Book of Mosiah. In the Book of Mosiah, you have the story of Ammon and Limhi. So this is not... I chop everyone's arms off, Ammon. This is, uh, I'm not worthy to baptize you, Ammon. Really, they should have come up with different names. This is Ammon the less, basically, if we want to talk about it that way. Um, they, they first of all think that Ammon is a, you know, they think he's a spy. They think he's a, a, a one of King Noah's priests. Because they think, Lemai's people think that Zarahemla has been destroyed. And they think Zarahemla has been destroyed because they sent out scouts to try to find Zarahemla because the Lamanites are, are enslaving them. They're treating them uh, terribly. And so they send out spies and, or scouts, and these scouts find a completely destroyed civilization. And some of them, you know, they assume, well, this must be Zarahemla. They find these gold plates that are there, and they bring them back. And Limhi, when he finds out that Ammon is not you know, one of uh, King Noah's priests, but in fact is from Zarahemla, he asks him that important question. He says, you know, knowest thou of anyone who can translate is the question that he asks. Um, and the, the response from Ammon is, I can assuredly tell thee, O king, of a man that can translate the records. This is Mosiah chapter eight, if you're wondering. Mosiah chapter eight in your Book of Mormon. Mosiah chapter eight, I guess verse six, I'll tell you the verse too. Um, I can assuredly tell the O king of a man that can translate the records for he has wherewith he can look and translate records, which are of ancient date. And it is a gift from God. And the things are called interpreters and no man can look in them except he be commanded. Lest he should look for that he ought not and he should perish. 
and whosoever is commanded to look in them, the same is called a seer. So uh, here you have an explanation in Mosiah of, of how you might use these stones to translate. This is not simply a passive uh, thing that's going on, right? This is not simply, um, uh, you know, Mosiah is holding the stone and he, or he's got it in his pocket. And as long as he has it in his pocket, he's able to translate. Instead, he has wherewith he can look. So a couple of things we've already learned just from the Book of Mormon text itself. That stones of some kind were prepared by God for the translation. The way that these Book of Mormon prophets used these stones is they looked at them, or they looked in them, or they, they in some way viewed them. So that's two things that we could get out of that. But as uh, Mormon provided commentary on this experience, and he provides that commentary in uh, Mosiah uh, chapter 28, verses 13 and 16, he, uh, he says that he translated them by the means of those two stones which were fastened in the two rims of the bow. Now, these things were prepared from the beginning and were handed down from generation to generation for the purpose of interpreting languages. And they've been kept and preserved by the hand of the Lord that he should discover to every creature who should possess the land the iniquities and abominations of his people. And whosoever has these things is called seer after the manner of old times. So we have this explanation from the Book of Mormon. The God has prepared these stones for seers to use to translate. Hence the terminology of seer stone. These are stones used by seers in order to translate. And it's not just a happenstance of, of that's how they do it. It's exactly how God, how God intended the translation to be. This, this is the preparation. And in fact, um, this is uh, what Joseph Smith is, is told by the angel when the angel appears to him. So this is in your Joseph Smith history, verses 34 and 35. The angel appears to him. Part of what he tells him is there was a book deposited, this is verse 34, written upon gold plates, giving an account of the former inhabitants of this continent and the source from whence they sprang. He also said that the fullness of the everlasting gospel was contained in it as delivered by this Savior to the ancient inhabitants. Also, that there were two stones in silver bows, and these stones, fastened to a breastplate, constituted what is called the Urim and Thummim, deposited with the plates. And the possession and use of these stones were what constituted seers in ancient or former times, and that God had prepared them for the purpose of translating the book. So now Joseph doesn't know uh, what the brother of Jared's experience is yet, right? This is before he even has the plates. He isn't translating any of this. The angel is telling him from the beginning, God has prepared stones for you to use to translate this book. And he, he goes on to say that that's where the term seer comes from. That's what constituted a seer, someone who had these stones that they could use to translate ancient languages. So from Joseph Smith history, we have the angel telling Joseph that he's going to use stones. We have the brother of Jared being told by the Lord that stones are going to be used to translate the book. We have Mosiah using stones to translate the, the gold plates of, of, of ether, the, the, the Jaredite plates. So we have these stones as being an integral part of, of the translation. Now, if you think about some of the images you've seen of translation, what's noticeably absent from the images that you've seen of translation? Stones. Right. I mean, sometimes there's some like in the fireplace hearth behind him. <laughs> I don't think that's what they But have. well, I mean, I doubt that that's the artist's intention is that, well, if there's a, if you just have a seer stone and build it into your fireplace hearth, then you're fine. So, so you like to start with the things we already know just to say, look, we already accept and believe these things. This isn't, this yeah, isn't I such mean, a huge leap. I, w I would at least like to start with the fact that just by reading the Book of Mormon, if we were to find out that Joseph Smith used stones to translate the gold plates, not only should that not be a surprise, it's what our expectation should be, right? Joseph is told by Moroni that God prepared stones for him to translate the book. So we should expect that 
Joseph is going to use stones to translate the book because that's that's what the angel told him. And I think that's actually a part of the problem is that we condition ourselves to to understand some of these things on the basis of artistic depictions, right? So if all I had was an an artist depiction of the translation that didn't show any seer stones, then I might in my mind come to think, well, that's how Joseph translated, right? Maybe, you know, I can think of two popular artist depictions of the translation. And in both of them, you know, they've got Joseph's hand resting on the gold plates and, you know, he's looking very earnestly. And and for Latter-day Saints, we're we're very we're very literal with our art. Uh we we uh in fact, a lot of times when we see uh you know, paintings, we actually will call them photos. I I, I hear people all the time like, "Oh, I saw a photograph of Joseph when he was translating." Well, I'm I'm pretty sure it wasn't a photograph, but yeah, I mean, you saw an image, yeah. And and we're very literalist. I mean, we probably aren't huge Picasso fans uh, generally as a people. I mean, we want things to be represented the way that they actually happen. But artists, of course, you know, as as Tony Sweat talks about in in his book, um, artists represent images um, in order to 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 have their viewers have a a an emotional response. The point is not usually for an artist to have a literal representation of what happened. Usually for an artist, the point is to cause the viewer to have an emotional response at what they see. And so a really good example of this, if we were to think, uh, you know, everyone imagine George Washington for a minute. So just picture him in your mind. Everybody's got a picture. Okay, you got it there? Okay. Now, my guess is, if it's not your dollar bill, which, you know, first of all, there's other other levels of currency. You should be thinking maybe Andrew Jackson. He's got a bigger forehead anyway. Um, it's probably George Washington standing on the front of a boat as he's crossing, uh, you know, uh, an icy river and people, you know, clinging and things. And this is the most iconic image of Washington that exists. Washington crossing the Delaware. It depicts... Washington's amazing victory against the, the, the British in the Battle of Trenton um, at really one of the low points of the Revolutionary War, right after they'd lost New York City, which was the, the, the biggest loss of the war. Um, and, you know, you, you see that image and it's powerful and it, you know, it, 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 it conveys this response of, you know, Washington's resolutely facing this unknown future. You could pull this up if you're if you're listening. Pull up Washington crossing the Delaware, and you can see the image we're talking about. And, you know, it's powerful, and it's evocative, and it's fundamentally inaccurate. I mean, and that's the problem, is that if how I think the crossing the Delaware actually took place is simply because of, of this image that I saw, well, then I'm going to have an inaccurate idea of how Washington crossed the the Delaware because first of all they cross in the dead of night when it's as black as it can possibly be because they don't want to be seen you might understand why an artist takes a little bit of liberty with that right I mean if I show it pitch black then you can't see anyone at all right so you could I guess make a lot of money as an artist just with a completely blank black canvas saying like oh no this is uh the signing of the treaty in that one place I mean I mean you know the, the reality is that you've got to introduce some light so the artist makes it light and he actually uses light to show it kind of dawning on the other side as a way of, again, it's symbolic of this American, um, you know, idea of an American nation, you know, breaking on the other side. But even, you know, the, the boats aren't accurate to the types of boats they use. They use high-sided boats. The people laid down in the boats as much as they could. They were terrified of being seen by scouts on the other side, so they actually took cotton bales and wrap them around the oars so the oars wouldn't make any splashing sounds that they went up and out of the water you know but there's washington standing on the front of the boat like he's a captain morgan rum commercial i mean as if as if well well this is for posterity i don't care if we get seen i don't care if we all die i've got to be up on the prow of the ship well of course that's not how they actually crossed but that's how we think of the crossing because that's the image that's in our in our minds I was going to say the other image that you might have in your mind, but only because you're a Latter-day Saint is, is Washington praying and next to his horse in Valley Forge. That that's a very popular uh, image from Latter-day Saints, but in either case, the reality is what we know about the battle of Trenton 
is probably from that picture, right? We might not even know it was the Battle of Trenton. We know that it was really important that Washington faced incredible odds and that he faced them resolutely. And that was actually the point of the artist, to get you to have this emotional response about America, that look what Washington did for us. Now, we can use another little, maybe a little closer home to example. I mean, maybe there's people listening that aren't Americans, right? Um, in which case, I'm, I, I apologize for a lack of language support. Um, but uh, everybody for a moment, think about Moses, right? Think of Moses. Well, I will guess that as you're thinking of an image of Moses, that Moses is wearing some kind of a reddish, orangish robe with a black stripe going down it, right? Um, and, and and the reality is that the Bible doesn't ever talk about the color of robe that, that Moses wears. But whenever we think of Moses, that's what we think of. Why? Well, because that's how Cecil B. DeMille had Charlton Heston clothed when he did the great epic film, The Ten Commandments. The Ten Commandments was so popular. That, that film was so popular that most representations of Moses after uh, that film showed him in this kind of reddish robe that he was clothed in for that movie. I mean, I think the only reason Cecil B. DeMille did it was to make Moses stand out against this mass of other people. Like, oh, here you can see that it's Moses. Because an artist isn't trying to get you to play, guess who I'm depicting. The artist wants you to see it and have an emotional response. And how are you going to have an emotional response if you don't know who it is? Who's this wild-eyed crazy guy? Oh, well, if I put an orange robe with a black stripe on it, well, that's Moses. It's not because that's what Moses wore, or maybe he wore it. I don't know. We have no we have no discussion of what Moses wore. We know he wore Egyptian clothes when he was in the, uh, in the court of Pharaoh, so maybe... It's a statement on Egyptian fashion. I don't think so. Um, at any rate, that's not, at least from records, how Moses actually looked, but it's how we think about him in our mind. And so I think it's really important when we talk about the translation of the Book of Mormon that we separate out the things that we were taught or that we studied from the idea we formed in our mind. Like I said, when I was younger, the way I formed it in my mind was Joseph Smith with the gold plates in front of him. And, you know, I, I knew that he had seer stones because I, I read that. I guess I just didn't know how they functioned. So I kind of just cut them out of the picture. And then when I saw images of the translation, you know, artist depictions of it, there weren't any seer stones there either. So it kind of, it, it all worked together. It was like, oh, well, I guess no one's using these things. And, and um, I think that it's important to recognize that some of our expectations about how the translation took place are not because someone has deliberately tried to teach us that that's not how it happened, but because well-meaning artists have depicted the translation how they think of it in their minds in a way that makes sense to them, right? I mean, many of you know Emma explaining that the gold plates were covered up as they translated. Well, every image you see of the translation has the gold plates just sitting out there on the table. There's a really good reason for that. It's pretty hard for you to know that it's gold plates if you can't see them. So an artist has a choice. Cover them all up in a burlap bag, and you're just wondering, is that a sack of potatoes on the table? Is jo- did Joseph just get back from collecting, you know, seashells at the beach? What's what is there in the bag? Or I can show the plates uncovered and then you know what they are. Might not be as historically accurate, but you can now have an emotional response about the fact that plates exist. Plates are real. Joseph's hand is on the plates. At any rate, that's just something to consider because for most people, at least most people I talk to, their idea of how the translation took place is primarily conditioned by images and art that they've seen or ways they've thought about it in their mind. And that's totally natural. That's exactly how it was for me before I started studying this. So I'm at least saying it's totally natural because that's where I was at. So I guess I'm, you know, I'm probably lowballing it a little bit because it makes me feel better that I didn't know any different. Um, At any rate, um, the the last thing uh, that I want to spend a little bit of time on, 
just go back to the text one more time. Because there's one aspect of the Book of Mormon text that I think is the least well-known and yet pretty important. We all hear about the Urim and Thummim. We hear about it all the time. The Urim and Thummim, Urim and Thummim, Urim and Thummim. In fact, we would probably describe the translation of the Book of Mormon to someone saying, Joseph Smith translated the gold plates using the Urim and Thummim. That's how Joseph describes the translation. Through the medium of the Urim and Thummim, I translated the plates through the gift and power of God. That's what he says. So that that we can get. Those two stones that are described in ether, um, that, that makes sense to us. But in Alma chapter 37, uh, verse 23, there's actually another reference to another translation device. One that, even though it's in the Book of Mormon, I know that when I've had conversations with some people, they're like, I, I feel like I've read the Book of Mormon like 30 times and I've never even really come across this. That's because it's got a weird name and you know, there's a bunch of things in the Book of Mormon with weird names. Like I don't have all their money system memorized either, right? Um, but this is, uh, the Lord said, I will prepare unto my servant Gazalim a stone which shall shine forth in darkness unto light that I may discover unto my people who serve me that I may discover unto them their works of their brethren, yea, their secret works, their works of darkness and their wickedness and abominations. Here talking about the translation of these things, instead of talking about two stones like the brother of Jared talked about, there's a separate single stone that's talked about and this one even has a name. Gazalim or Gazalim, or I actually have no idea how it's supposed to be pronounced. I don't speak ancient Nephite, so I'm just going to throw different pronunciations out there. But um, so there's a couple of things then that I can probably uh, deduce just from studying the scriptures I have in front of me. If this was my goal, if I sat down one day and I said, What can I know about the translation of the Book of Mormon, how it was done just by reading the scriptures themselves? Well, first, that God had prepared sacred stones to be used by a future seer to translate the book. Okay. It's what the brother of Jared says. Uh, it's what Mormon says when he's covering that. Um, it's how Moroni uh, talks about it as well, that these stones are sealed up. It's what the angel Moroni says to Joseph. God prepared stones. Prophets were given stones. The idea was to seal them up. And Joseph is told by the angel that he's going to use stones to translate. And when Joseph describes opening the box, in it are stones. So any idea of translation that I have that doesn't involve these stones, however I came about it, whether it's because I saw a picture of an art in an art or I was just thinking about translation myself, it doesn't really matter how I came about it. If it's going to be accurate, stones have to be involved because that's what the angel said. That's what the Book of Mormon says. It's what Joseph says. So I think we have to take the fact that stones are involved as a reality, right? Secondly, so that's the first takeaway from what we get from the text. Secondly, because of the way Mosiah uses these stones as a seer, that he looks at them, the second takeaway is that the way a seer uses these stones is he looks at them. He actually interacts with them. He looks into them or at them. He's not simply, you know, he doesn't just have a stone and he puts it in his pocket and now he can translate. This is a matter of interacting with those stones. Third, because of our Alma uh, 37 discussion of Gazalim, that there's at least two separate translation devices that were designed by God to be used by the seer. The two stones given to the brother of Jared, so we, we talked about that in Ether, and that single stone gazalim that's mentioned in alma at the very least there's two different translation devices there's these interpreters that the brother of jared has and then there's these this separate stone so these are things we could take from the text now the fourth point is is less conclusive but i think it's important to note because we're going to be talking about what these witnesses actually had to say and that is that it shouldn't be surprising if the way that those stones function in, in some way like the Jaredite stones is that they shine in the darkness because that's exactly what Alma 37 says. I will prepare into my servant Gazalim a stone which will sh shall shine forth in darkness unto light. So that's not conclusive. I'm not saying that you'd come away going, oh, obviously they shine. But at the same time, you probably shouldn't be stunned 
if that's the way that they work, because at least there's that possibility in the text. So those four things I think are a starting point. And that's before we go to any witness accounts of translation. There are lots of people who witness the translation. Emma, as a scribe, witnesses translation. Joseph Knight Sr. witnesses the translation. Uh, Martin Harris, as a scribe, witnesses the translation. Oliver Cowdery clearly is a part of the translation. Um, th- there are numerous witnesses of this translation. David Whitmer, who the translation, a, a healthy portion of it takes place in his home. And they leave accounts of how that translation took place. They leave these accounts in different formats. They leave them in, uh, you know, sometimes in letters that they write to other people, sometimes in public published accounts. Sometimes other people hear them talk about it and they write it down in their journals. And we, we found those sources. In, in one case, Joseph Smith talks to a potential publisher of the Book of Mormon, trying to convince him to publish the book and explains to him how it is that he translated the gold plates. So we have lots of different sources Uh, historical sources where people talk about the translation. So I just think it's good to start with, what does the Book of Mormon itself say about its own translation? Now let's juxtapose that. Let's look at what these witnesses of translation have to say about it. Then we 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 can maybe draw some more conclusions. So if we're going to take a look at the historic sources, probably the best place to start is with Joseph Smith. So what did Joseph Smith say as it relates to the translation of the plates? Well, we all have, you know, what's in Joseph Smith history, right? That was part of the history of the church that was uh, added to the Pro Great Price. But when he's writing the Wentworth letters, a really good example of how Joseph chooses to describe it publicly, right? So Joseph knows this is going to be published in a book to essentially non-members. This is supposed to be a history of of the Latter-day Saints um, as part of a larger work. It ends up not getting published, which is the reason why they publish it on their own. They decide to cut off the history you know, earlier. But um, this is how Joseph wanted to describe it. And so he's describing it to a, a non-member. That's what's important um, to, to non-members, period. Right? He explains that the records were engraved on plates. This is from the Wentworth letter which had the appearance of gold. Each plate was six inches wide and eight inches long and not quite so thick as common tin. They were filled with engravings in Egyptian characters and bound together in a volume as the leaves of a book with three rings running through the hole. The volume was something near six inches in thickness, a part of which was sealed. The characters on the unsealed part were small and beautifully engraved. The whole book exhibited many marks of antiquity in its construction and much skill in the art of engraving. With the records was found a curious instrument, which the ancients called Urim and Thummim, which consisted of two transparent stones in the rims of a bow fastened to a breastplate. Through the medium of the Urim and Thummim, I translated the record by the gift and power of God. So this is how Joseph made a public description of it to people that were not members of the church. He made a public description saying that there were stones, that were found in, uh, uh, in, in this box, right? That these, these, this curious instrument, which consisted of two transparent stones, so stones are involved, and that he used those stones to translate the book. So Joseph's saying he uses stones to translate. Now, we don't know exactly how, that, you know, he isn't giving a whole lot of detail on the how there, but he is certainly explaining that that's how it's done. So that, that's what he expects people to at least think of it. Now, earlier, he attempted to write a history in 1832, which uh, I already quoted a little bit from. It's an incomplete history. He, he, it appears that he's writing it with the intention of publishing it at some point, but it's never published, and it just kind of leaves off, and it's incomplete. But it's his 1832 history, and that history um, gives a, uh, an account uh, of, of this translation, how how he came uh, about it. Let me uh, let's pull that up there. So he talks about Martin Harris taking the characters to the East, right? So Martin Harris takes those characters and, and we know the whole story. You know, Anthony, you know, says, you know, bring me the book and I'll translate it. And, oh, the book's sealed. You know, that you, you got the whole story. You already know it all. 
Well, in Joseph's 1832 history, he tells that story very similar to the way we tell the story in our um, in uh, Joseph Smith history today. But then he also explains Harris coming back, and he says, and he returned to me, and he gave them to me to translate. And I said, I cannot, for I am not learned. But the Lord had prepared spectacles for to read the book. Therefore, I commenced translating the characters. Now, that description of spectacles is actually the way that the earliest accounts describe it. Not because that's Joseph wearing them on his face, but because, uh, you know, they're two stones bound together. I mean, what's the closest thing they resemble? They, they, they seem to resemble like a giant pair of glasses type of thing. So they will actually call them spectacles quite a bit. They'll use the terminology interpreters and spectacles in those early first years. That seems to be the way that Joseph describes it. It's how he writes it in his own history, and it's how he describes it to other people. Now, we, we have a, a relatively recent find um, from a non-Latter-day Saint scholar uh, from a Shaker journal from uh, Ohio um, in, the, in 1830. Oliver Cowdery gets sent on a mission after his whole, you know, Hiram Page incident uh, by Doctrine and Covenants section twenty-eight. You, can, you know, we have an earlier podcast on that. Um, and on his way through Ohio, he's preaching, and uh, a Shaker will will write down Oliver Cowdery's claim to this translation. Um, th- th- like I said, this was found relatively recently, um, and again, this is this is a little bit filtered because this is what the Shaker is saying that Oliver Cowdery said. But this is also before there are very many accounts of translation and circulation, right? So this is, you know, of course, later there's all kinds of people claiming all kinds of things about Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon. This is very early. So it makes it a little bit uh, easier to believe this is coming from uh, Cowdery. So you said that uh, this is a fairly early account. As it relates to sources of the translation or even sources in history at all, how do some sources have more weight perhaps, than other sources do. It sounds like is what you're describing here is that this source is more reliable. Why would this one be more reliable? Well, it's an earlier source, but it is a secondhand source, right? It's someone writing down what they said Oliver Cowdery said. Now, they're not writing it down 70 years later. They're writing it in their journal. That doesn't mean they got it right. I mean, I think we've all had the experience of speaking somewhere and then having someone after we get done speaking coming up to us and telling us that they love the part of our talk and it was actually something we, we never even said. But it was something they were probably thinking in their mind, right? And so it was, it was how they were connecting it to themselves. I love the part, how you talked about this, and you're thinking to yourself, I didn't even mention that, but, you know, thank you. That sounds great. Um, so you always have to be a little bit careful with that. It's a secondhand source, but it is a contemporary source, meaning it's a source that was created at the time but he's reporting what Oliver Cowdery said. Now, Oliver Cowdery's clearly a firsthand witness of translation. He's as involved in translation as anyone can be and not be named Joseph Smith. So, um, you know, you, you, take, you, you have to give it a little bit of weight. Uh, at the same time, you know, yeah, maybe the shaker heard him wrong. Maybe he didn't understand correctly. I mean, it's obviously a very weird thing that he's talking about. But this is what he recorded in his journal. Richard McNamara, right, uh, the shaker. The engraving being unintelligible to the learned and the unlearned, there is said to have been in the box with the plates two transparent stones in the form of spectacles through which the translator looked on the engraving and afterwards put his face into a hat. And the interpretation flowed into his mind, which he uttered to the amanuensis, which is a great 19th century word meaning scribe. Um, but, you know, if ever you want to sound, you know, if you want, scri- scribe sounds low class. So you say amanuensis, um, who wrote it down. So there's a couple things that are introduced here in the Shaker journal. One, the way that Cowdery is describing these stones is the same way that Joseph is describing them uh, in his uh, 1832 history. He's using that term spectacles to describe it. So that's actually going to give you a little bit more weight of the veracity of, of, of this source. It's a completely independent source. You know, this wasn't found, you know, for a century and a half after uh, it was written. And so this is, this is not a shaker, you know, listening to a whole bunch of other sources and then writing it down. They're independent sources. And so historians look for multiple independent attestations, multiple attestations of the same thing. So 
if I have Joseph Smith saying that he called them spectacles, the stones that he used, and you have Oliver Cowdery, according to the Shaker, calling them spectacles, and we have other sources that call, then then what does the historian conclude? Well, it seems like that they they were calling these things spectacles early on. They must have been. That's why you have multiple independent attestations, meaning multiple sources independent of one another that are saying the same thing. Um, this is the kind of uh, study you'd do if you were studying the New Testament, uh, and everyone's asleep. So let's. <laughs> yeah, let's, I, I jumped the gun on laughing because I thought that's the joke that you were about to. Make. Yeah, yeah, I thought that you were just laughing because this was so terrible. But anyway, um, you have you have Cowdery saying that. But the other thing that he introduces here that is probably one of the more uncomfortable things is that the stones are uh, used in conjunction with a hat. Now, that is the part that I think for many Latter-day Saints that, you know, you hear that he's using a hat and, and we, we, you know, we pull woe on those horses' reins pretty quick. In part because none of our popular images show a hat at all. And second of all, hats are in our culture almost entirely associated with like a magician like pulling a rabbit out, right? I mean... You know, uh, essentially, you know, you know, is this your card? Is our general thought of someone using a hat for for a purpose like that? So, um, it it's already causes us a little bit of a pause. What does he What does he mean a hat? Well, let's go listen to what some of the other sources have to say to to kind of get a better explanation. Now, remember that um, uh, Emma Smith serves as a scribe of the translation. She is the unheralded hero of the early translation of the Book of Mormon. You know, we all, we, we love Emma because of her devotion to Joseph and, and you know, the sacrifices she made and, 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 you know, the founding of the Relief Society and the writing of the hymnal. But we don't give her her due for the fact that she was the scribe for most of the early translation of the Book of Mormon. The reason why we don't think of her as a scribe is because the part that she wrote is the part that Martin Harris lost. Which is probably part of the reason why she's a little bit bitter that Martin Harris lost it. She seems not happy about it when she reflects on it later. Now, this is a later source. This is Emma, later in life, explaining the translation uh, in an interview. So, she is a firsthand witness of this. She's literally a scribe. She's sitting across from Joseph while he's doing it. But she is giving this account you know, 35 years later. So it, it, it's not contemporary, but it is firsthand and by a firsthand witness of the event. So that's a little bit different, right? So the Cowdery source I just did is very early. It's an early source written in a journal. It's very contemporary, but it's filtered through someone else. So it's secondhand. It's someone else saying this is what Oliver Cowdery said, right? It just so happened to be exactly the same thing that Joseph Smith said. So it kind of gives it a little bit more veracity, but Emma says, now the first part that my husband tra- my husband translated was translated by the use of the Urim and Thummim. So using that, that terminology that we use to describe the two stones that are bound together. And that was the part that Martin Harris lost. Again, like I said, a little bitter, but yeah, it makes sense. She spent months and months working on this and Martin Harris lost it. After that, he used a small stone, not exactly black, but was rather dark in color. So... Um, remember one of the things that we get out of the Book of Mormon text is that Joseph Smith is going to use stones to translate and that there are multiple translation devices. There's the Jaredite stones, the, the interpreters, the stones that are bound together, the spectacles, if that's what we want to call them. And then that single stone called Gazalem. Now that separate stone is probably one of the ones that we haven't really heard of before. But she explains that there were that he translated it first with the the, the bound together spectacles, and then after that used uh, a separate stone. Now, like I said, I know that that makes us feel a little bit uncomfortable. But the idea that Joseph had a separate seer stone is something that's well known to early apostles and prophets. Brigham Young will talk about Joseph Smith finding this separate seer stone. Wilford Woodruff is perhaps the one who talks about it most. He explains that that seer stone known as Gazlam, using that, that word, was shown of the Lord uh, 
to the prophet Joseph to be some 30 feet underground, which he obtained by digging under the pretense of excavating for a well. So at least according to Woodruff, and it's a similar uh, commentary from others, Joseph finds this separate seer stone gazelum when he's digging a well. Now, we don't know the date of that. These are all reminiscent things. What do we know? We know that Joseph has a separate stone that is brownish. And one of the ways that we know it is that stone's actually in the church archives right now. Uh, it's it's in the, 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 the first presidency vault, actually. It's, it is a stone that its image was published in the Enzyme just a few years ago, this brownish stone. But to give you an idea of how much uh, Woodruff venerated this, uh, this seer stone, this separate seer stone, in 1888, when they are uh, dedicating the Manti Temple, he, he goes down there and he sets up the temple presidency. And, but before he leaves, he writes in his journal that he consecrated upon the altar the seer stone that Joseph Smith found by revelation some 30 feet under the earth. Now, I don't even know what that means. I don't know what consecrating on the altar a seer stone means, um, but it shows that not only is Woodruff aware of this separate stone, a set apart from the two that were bound together, it's, it's not something that's causing Woodruff a faith crisis, okay? It's part of the way, way that he knows that Joseph Smith really is a prophet because he has this stone. And to the point where he's going to make that stone part of the of the dedication process of of the Manti Temple, it's important to him. So while we may not have heard uh, as much about these separate seer stones in in Joseph Smith's time period and, and in the decades that followed, they're well known to members of the church. Now this, of course, is before there's widespread art depicting the translation. Uh, We don't have a lot of gospel art kits in 1888. So um, uh, they don't have the same level of conditioning on the basis of of what it is they've seen or how they've imagined uh, the translation to have taken place. At any rate, Emma is going to, to, to kind of verify one of the points we made at first. She says specifically that he uses separate translation devices. He uses the two stones that are bound together, and then he uses that single stone. And Emma's also going to verify another thing that comes out of that that Oliver Cowdery source, that that Richard McNamara source. She says, I frequently wrote day after day, often sitting at the table close by him, he sitting with his face buried in his hat, with the stone in the hat, and dictating hour after hour, with nothing between us. So, She's, she's giving a very clear description of how it is that Joseph translated with her. Again, she's, she's, trans, she's the scribe with him for months. It's important to note that Emma is not trying to denigrate Joseph here. Emma is desperately trying to prove that Joseph really was a prophet and that he really translated the Book of Mormon. I know that because, you know, Emma doesn't go west and, and becomes, you know, a uh, uh, outside of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints and, you know, becomes a part of the reorganized Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, sometimes our tendency is to say, well, then we can't listen to anything she had to say. Well, it's always important, again, as a historian, to know what is the person trying to do at that moment. Well, is she trying to say that Joseph wasn't a prophet? Not even close. She's trying to prove how miraculous the Book of Mormon translation was, and she describes her experience that he placed the stone in a hat, and then he would look into that hat. Now, again, that's not the image that we're normally used uh, to, to, to thinking about. It's not the, the image that we're normally used to thinking about. But it's also what uh, um, others said as well. Let's maybe go to a Martin Harris account. Martin Harris gives us an account of the stones, explaining what the, what the stones looked like. He said, the stones were white like uh, polished marble with a few gray streaks. I never dared to look into them by placing them in the hat because Moses said that no man could see God and live. And besides, we had a command that let no man look into them except by the command of God, lest anyone should look out and perish. He later explains that, um, and this is again a later account, it's from Martin Harris, but he's explaining to someone many years later, 
that Joseph would put the stones in the bottom of his hat and then would look into the hat and, and Martin said, quote, the prophet would read sentence by sentence as Martin wrote. Okay, so again, we have this description of the use of the hat in this process. Uh, Harris is going to make it even more particular. By the aid of the seer stone, sentences would appear and were read by the prophet and written by Martin. And when finished, he would say, written. And if correctly written, that sentence would disappear and another would appear in its place. But if not written correctly, it remained until corrected. So here Martin Harris is describing what Joseph is doing. He places the seer stones in that hat and and at least appears to read words that appear on the stones that are in the bottom of the hat. And you might say to yourself, well, why exactly are, are, are the stones in the hat at all? David Whitmer kind of gives us a really good explanation of that. Um, Whitmer, of course, is not a scribe, but he's one of the three witnesses. The translation is taking place at his house. He says, Joseph Smith would put the seer stone into a hat and put his face in the hat, drawing it close around his face to exclude the light. So again, now you get the explanation of why. Why is it in the hat? It's not because it's a magic hat. It's not Frosty the Snowman's hat. You don't put it on his head and he begins to dance around. It's a tool. You have to exclude the light. Why? In the darkness, the spiritual light would shine. So if you could think about this, I know that you know, uh, elder, you know, president Uchtdorf, depending on, on, on the timing, um, talked about this very thing using his cell phone as an example that, uh, you know, that, that these, these words appear on it. I mean, or we could use our own example, you know, every one of us has been walking somewhere really sunny. Maybe we're on a beach. Let's imagine we're on a beach just because of COVID. Let's pretend somehow we were able to vacation and you're on the beach and, you know, a, a text comes in and it's as bright as it could possibly be. You're standing out there in the sun. And what do you do? You, you shade the, the front of your phone screen so that you can see what's written on there. Now, the words that are on your phone screen, they were always there. They were there regardless. So what did you change? You changed the amount of ambient light around the words so you could actually see it. It's the same way when we're trying to, you know, watch a, a, a projected image from a projector, right? You know, what does the teacher do, you know, to before you do the slideshow? Well, they, they, they turn the lights down. Otherwise, you wouldn't be able to see what's actually being written, uh, what's being projected. But the words don't change. Your ability to see them changes. Some of you prefer to watch, you know, movies in the dark for the very same reason, right? It's easier to see what's, what's on the film when, when, when it's dark around it. So Joseph is apparently placing these stones in a hat as a, as a tool, not, not as, you know, some kind of mystical apparatus. The miracle is that God prepared these stones for the translation of the gold plates. The, the, the hat is simply a way of making it dark around the stones for that miracle to, to be more easily discerned. As David Whitmer explained, a piece of something resembling a parchment would appear on the stone, and on that appeared writing. One character at a time would appear, and under that was the interpretation in English. Brother Joseph would read off the English to Oliver Cowdery, who was his principal scribe, and when it was written down and repeated to Brother Joseph to see if it was correct, then it would disappear and another character with the interpretation would appear. Now, you might be thinking again, well, wait a minute, David Whitmer, didn't he also leave the church? Yes, he does. And he rails against the church. For the remainder of his life, he's an antagonist of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. But he also forms several of his own churches. And the basis of his church is that the Book of Mormon is absolutely the Word of God. And that Joseph Smith was a prophet in the translation of the book. So whatever our feelings might be about the fact that David Whitmer is, is one of the three witnesses who leaves and never comes back, he's not trying to denigrate the translation of the Book of Mormon here. It's the, it's the sole, it, it's the most important aspect of his church that the Book of Mormon is the Word of God. He's trying to explain the miraculous way it came about. And notice how similar it is 
to what Oliver Cowdery's already explained, what Emma Smith has already explained, what Martin Harris has explained. And again, these are multiple independent attestations. David Whitmer isn't reading the, the handwritten interview that Martin Harris had with Edward Stevenson. Uh, Emma Smith isn't reading David Whitmer's account when she gives her interview with her son because she gives her interview years before David Whitmer gives this account. So they are independently giving some very similar aspects to that translation. One of the things that's really important is the way that David Whitmer ends this explanation. So he describes this translation in a way that might be a little bit odd to us, that Joseph took these stones and they put them in a hat, and that makes me feel uncomfortable, right? But that doesn't make David Whitmer feel uncomfortable. In fact, the way he ends off describing these words appearing on the seer stones is, thus the Book of Mormon was translated by the gift and power of God and not by any power of man. Similarly, Joseph Knight Sr. will have a similar account that he will give, again, completely independent of David Whitmer, something that wasn't even found until later, in which he describes the translation in a way that is also uh, very similar. Let me share that with you. Joseph Knight Sr. described it as, um, again, in a, in a separate account, he said that Joseph would put the Urim and Thummim into his hat and darken his eyes. So again, the purpose of the hat, as described by one of these witnesses of translation, good friend of Joseph Smith, is to make it dark enough around the stone to be able to see the words that are appearing on the stone. And he wrote, ascendance would appear in bright Roman letters. Then he would tell the writer, and he would write it, and then it would go away. And the next sentence would come, and so on. But if it was not, and this is actually one of the greatest ironies of 19th century literature, he, he wrote, but if it was not spelt right, and they're, they're, they're both spelled incorrectly, um, it would not go away. So, so Joseph Knight Sr. luckily isn't the one making the decision of whether or not it's spelt right, um, because it, it wouldn't be. Um, but if it was not spelt right, it would not go away till it was right. And notice how he ends his account of translation very similar to the way that David Whitmer does. And so we see it was marvelous. Just like David Whitmer described these words appearing on the stone as the miracle, as, as the fact that they knew it was from God, this is the same way that, that Joseph Knight Sr. described it as well. And so one of the issues that I think 21st century Latter-day Saints have in approaching the translation of the Book of Mormon is we're coming at things from a very different world. We're coming at things from a very secular world, a world in which we want everything to be logical. We want to reduce whatever miracles there are. We want to be able to understand exactly how it happened, and I need to know exactly what the lift was with the wind that came across the water that Jesus walked on in order to keep Jesus up on the... They're coming from a world where they see something that is completely outside the realm of explanation. And rather than desperately trying to find a way to explain it, that's how they know this is from God. Because anyone can dictate a book. People dictate books all the time. And, and you might say, well, they don't dictate you know, books as long as the book. Yeah, they do. Well, maybe they're not as good as the book of Mormon. Well, that's a matter of opinion on the basis of whether or not you're a Latter-day Saint or not. The reality is people dictate books all the time. And uh, the difference with Joseph is that he has these words appearing on these specially prepared stones. Anyone can dictate a book, but not anyone can make words appear on a stone. That's a miracle. That's something that's not explicable. And so our early Latter-day Saints... They, they don't believe in spite of the fact that Joseph Smith is using a seer stone and placing it in a hat, right? They aren't dealing with what a 21st century Latter-day Saint is, trying to, you know, to, to figure out how to still believe after having watched you know, a, a, a cartoon episode mocking the translation. They believe because Joseph Smith is using seer stones. 
They believe because words are appearing on that stone. That's the miracle. And so uh, I want you to think about that as you contemplate the things we've, ta- we've talked about in, in this episode. We, we know because the angel told Joseph. We know because Joseph told us that God prepared these stones for the purpose of translation. And apparently the way that they used them was in that was in that manner. But the fact that the people closest to the translation, even people who leave the church and are bitter about it, like David Whitmer, are certain that it was a miracle from God, just goes to show how, how important that translation miracle is. Now, in our next episode, we're going to talk about the earliest account of translation that exists. And I wish I could tell you it was from a Joseph Smith journal, but he's not even keeping a journal that early. It's not from a letter. It's actually from an antagonistic anti-Mormon newspaper editor. So if you want to listen to some good anti-Mormonism, <laughs> tune into the next podcast because we're going to we're going to talk about the ways that people attacked the Book of Mormon and its translation early on, and that will help you understand Um, Part of the reason why there's so much obfuscation and misinformation about it even today. So thank you so much for tuning in. And I'm excited to to finish this with you next week. But um, if you have more questions, please do look into either the Gospel Topics essay that is on the the church website. You can go to church history on the churchofjesuschrist.org. And the Gospel Topics essays, there's an essay on the translation of the Book of Mormon that provides many of these same sources. Uh, or you could you could look at, at the book that uh, Mike McKay and I published, which is all about the translation of the Book of Mormon. But there are sources for this. There are answers for the, the questions that we might have. And, and I'm just hoping that if, if you have more questions, that you'll avail yourself of those sources so that you can you can get them in probably a little bit more coherent version than you just got them now, I would guess, or at least I hope. Anyway, I, I, I'm grateful for uh, you tuning in, and, and I look forward to presenting the rest of this to you next week. Thank you for listening to the Standard of Truth podcast, hosted by historian Dr. Garrett Dirkmott. If you know anybody that could benefit from the material in this episode, please share it with them. And for more resources, visit standardoftruth.com. Until next time.